are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today's guest is Dr. Pedro Valdez Sosa, who's the General Vice Director for Research of the Cuban Neurosciences Center, which he co-founded in 1990. He studied medicine at the University of Havana and graduated in 1972. He's also studied mathematics in 1973. He obtained his PhD in 1978. Uh, in 1979, he did a postdoc on neurometrics and computational techniques and biophysical modeling of brain electrical activity with Professor Roy, uh, E. Roy John at the Brain Research Lab of New York University. He's also a full member of the Cuban Academy of Sciences and the Latin American Academy of Sciences. He's also associate member of the International Center for Theoretical Physics. He's been invited professor of the Institute of Statistical Mathematics in Japan, invited researcher of the Brain Science Institute at Riken, Japan, and honorary professor at UCL. So Pedro is known not only for his innovation and rigor in EEG analysis, as well as analysis in other brain imaging techniques, uh, but also for his highly collaborative work and passion to improve science development, communication, and dissemination in less developed countries. He's currently flying back and forth between Havana and Chengdu, China, where he's developing uh, pooled databases for quantitative EEG. And in this conversation, we, we cover uh, his history, uh, some of his uh, important mentors, some of the things he's passionate about. We, we delve into a few of his papers, uh, of his many papers, uh, talking about extracting novel information from EEG and sort of revealing that there's still a lot we really don't understand about the EEG frequencies, about the signal in general, and there's still a lot of work to be done as far as uh, source localization for EEG. And we talk a little bit about the, the use of a pool database for EEG and many other things. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, uh, Pedro Valdez Sosa, thanks for visiting. It's great to see you. It's almost exactly seven years to the month that I that I've had the honor of being invited to, to for a workshop in Cuba. And I was impressed and it was a wonderful exchange. And um yeah, and 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 I've been realizing that uh, you know, just by looking at your work, you've been extremely active in many, in many things. Uh and your your expertise is is mathematics and EEG, um, uh, among other things. And 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 uh, uh, we could just get started with your background. Um, so so thanks for coming. Thanks for literally virtually coming onto this podcast. Uh, I don't think many people know that you were actually born in the states. You were born in Chicago. So maybe starting starting there, uh, maybe trace your your background a little bit in, in terms of. Um, you know, when you moved to Cuba and, and where you had your education and, and collaborators and, and, and mentors and things like that. 
So actually, uh, yeah, I was born in 1950 in Chicago at the Norwegian American Hospital. No? Uh, my father was an intern who then did his residency in uh, Chicago. My mother was an English teacher and they went there in the late 40s. So uh, I, I grew up visiting Cuba, being in, in Chicago. The house was very, let's say, oriented towards science and rationality. Uh, I got interested, for example, uh, uh, our, my dad and my mom, you know, we would study classics. They bought me a chemistry kit, you know, the usual thing. Yeah. I, had, we would, I have a twin brother uh, and we would, you know, part of our time would be spent uh, looking through, you know, small microscopes and stuff like that. But one thing that really marked me was that uh, my dad uh, loved Scientific American, the Scientific American of the 50s, which was a bit more expanded. And one of the things I read when I was, I'd say about at, uh, 11, was a paper by uh, Walter and uh, Imitation of Life. And it sort of described uh, they're using circuits to model parts of the brain. And, and you know what? At that time, I forgot about it later, but I said, I'm going to go into this field of engineering, mathematics, modeling. I was very young. So uh, my family moved back to uh, the Cuba in 1961. I actually jumped a few grades now. And, uh, and, and me and my brother, uh, there was this plan to uh, train medical doctors. So I got into the uh, medical school uh, when I was 16. And when I started studying uh, medicine, uh, this, this thing, these things I read about using mathematics, electronics, you know, what was called cybernetics at that time, it, it, it captured my, still had my attention. And when I started studying medicine, I got really interested in the uh, generation of the nerve impulse. We're talking about 1966, 1967, no? And I started reading the classics, no? the, um, uh, all, the, uh, all the papers on the generation of the uh, nerve impulse, and I realized that my math wasn't that good. So uh, what I started doing was kept on studying medicine, started studying math on the side, you know, while I read papers. And, and then uh, I was very lucky because uh, in 1969, I met... Uh, to, I mean, before 1968, I met one of my mentors, but then I met my other mentor in 1969. Now, there Talia Harmony, it was a, uh, who is from Mexico, but went to Cuba to help uh, develop science. And uh, it was Erwin Roy John, uh, who, uh, you know, he spent his last years working at NYU at the Brain Research Labs, which he headed. And so I was already interested in math. I was studying math. And then I met up with him, and uh, Roy and Talia were very interested in the use of computer techniques to study electrical activity of the brain. And the reason was very simple. They thought it could unlock cognition. It could unlock, for example, Roy John was one of the authors of the P300 paper. And, uh, and I remember my first discussions with him were on factor analysis and, and whether that could bring out the states of the brain. We're talking 1970. I did factor analysis. Um, a very old-fashioned computer uh, by programming in machine language the Jacobi algorithm to get extract eigenvectors and eigenvalues. So, so this tells you that I had a very atypical uh, medical. It's more typical now. I've seen a lot of my friends, like uh, 
like uh, Michael Breakspeare, a lot of people that have gone into both fields, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's been very frequent. So what happened uh, uh, at that time that we started discussing these things is that Roy John got a, a donation from scientists of New York for a special purpose computer. The only thing it would do is to extract average volt potentials. And this he donated to the, uh, the center where Talia uh, and where I was a young student, no? And that there, uh, I started using the special purpose computer. But then a year later, uh, a group of my friends uh, developed in 1970 a Cuban computer, which was essentially equivalent to the PDP, which is what people used at that time. Yes. Uh, it wasn't copied. It, it, was, it was, let's say, designed. Uh, it was, uh, how do you call it, when you... You know how it works, and then you engineer it backwards and get oh, it and get it together. Yeah, yeah. In fact, engineer. So we knew that this was one of the coolest computers. We couldn't get it because of trade embargoes and things like that. So yep. these guys, in ten months, in ten months, they constructed the computer. That's where I uh, honed my programming skills, and I did all this other stuff. And the programming was all machine. Was it like you know machine language programming? It went through three generations. So the first was machine uh, language, you know, hexadecimal. The, uh, actually, uh, the memory was so short that you had to first fit in the compiler, run the code through, and then fit, fill in, the, then you ran in the operating system. We're talking about 4K of memory, okay? 4K of memory to do everything. Wow. So that made, but that was interesting because that, uh, that made all the group uh, be very keen on uh, optimizing code, okay? And that's a habit that one keeps, you know, now we're spoiled. We get giga and petabytes, no? But uh, anyway, uh, what happened then, uh, I decided uh, with my mentors, so Roy John was very active in mechanisms of memory. He, he was one of the authors on the P300 paper. He described endogenous evoked potentials uh, in the late 50s in cats. So, and, uh, and, and, but he was also very interested in the use of this in clinical applications. And this was more or less the same things that I've continued doing. So we got our computers going in Cuba. He had his computers going and uh, we were collecting data and uh, we started developing methods for uh, extracting, let's say biomarkers from event-related potentials in EEG. And then we, at that time, uh, what was very popular for this sort of thing was uh, traditional classical multivariate statistics. We didn't have deep learning, we didn't have, but we did have discriminant analysis. Yep. In fact, in 1969, I did a, uh, my, one of my first published paper is a cluster analysis of the shape of evoked potentials in healthy subjects, okay? And, uh, this, this, a lot of this, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, so I programmed an algorithm that's still used. It's called uh, the Wishard algorithm. That just, you know, it's an agglomerative method to combine. And the shapes of evoked potentials, there's a funny part there. My, my twin brother, uh, it was one of the sample because uh, we started differently. I, I was more interested in math, physics. We both studied medicine. But then he was more interested in surgery experiments and things like that. But we ended up at the same lab. So he was one of the experimental subjects, but he fell asleep. So suddenly there's this cluster of one guy, 
totally different. And it was my brother, my twin brother, who, who simply was, you know, on his own as an outlier because he had fallen asleep. So, <laughs> so that shows that even at that time, uh, we were starting to look at this possibility. So what came out of, uh, of a long collaboration, which is really remarkable because uh, it, 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 it occurred during a period where there was a lot of political tension uh, between the U.S. and Cuba. Nevertheless, there, there was never an interruption of scientific activity, trying to do things for the benefit of, of people, for knowledge. And uh, this led up to the idea that one could use numerical methods. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about cluster analysis, criminal analysis, to try uh, to, and factor analysis, of course, which is something we use a lot, to chart out what would be the space of normal development and then look for deviations of this. And uh, that, that generated a joint paper between the Cuban and, and, and New York group headed by, you know, the paper was the first author is Roy John in science yes. in uh, yeah. May 1977. If you consider that EEG is also a sort of imaging modality that at that time was only on the scalp, but then later uh, we started with source analysis later on. And that was one of the first things because the EEG was accessible. At the time we published that there was no MRI. Okay, we're talking about 1977. It's the yeah. work of the previous, uh, the previous eight years. What we have now is much larger samples, better defined, uh, I mean, not categories like uh, in DSM. No, we have a better. We have we have the uh, the phenotyping much better, and of course the machine learning methods are much better. But the questions I think are there. They're the same questions. They're pretty much the same. And and how many? What was your? How many leads did your EEG have at that time? Like uh, was it? Uh... Oh, at that time, it, what was standard was to have from ninety to twenty-five leads alone. One minute of EEG resting state EEG, and then event-related potentials. But this, uh, uh, this allowed us not, uh, sorry, we didn't say we were going to do very precise source localization. You can do some. As you have less leads, your full width at half max increases for any of the source imaging methods. So we never, I mean, we were clear that we were not going to get a, a very precise, uh, let's say, topographic uh, information. But, but detection of state is something we did get. In fact, from that work, one of the normal samples we included was already a multinational work, was, a da was data from uh, the island of Barbados. And uh, why is this interesting? Because uh, this was uh, a time after they, uh, they separated uh, from the UK, you know, became part of the Commonwealth as a separate. They had a situation with malnutrition. And what happened at that time is that they solved the problem. The government solved the problem. And the people who were engaged in solving the problem invited Roy John to do a study of EEG of children with malnutrition and that didn't have malnutrition. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now that, that study, these people, these uh, these people who had malnutrition and didn't were followed up till the day today. They're still it's a, it's a fifty something year old study. Wow. So so I uh, we went back. With, the, uh, with this 19 lead EEG, which is what was available at the time. Actually, the, the system was totally equivalent to ours because our engineers were in contact. So we went in and uh, 45 years later, we did the EEG of a number of these people. Wow. And the, let's say the fingerprint, the, the, the change that malnutrition produces 
only in the first year of life, even if you solve it afterwards, uh, lasts all, all life. Wow. This is interesting. That's really amazing. That's, I mean, so there's a signature. So what, what was different? Like what, what was the signature that was different and, and, and what do you think caused it? it slow wave activity, excess of, uh, of beta activity. And we have a paper that's uh, now under review in narrow image that has the 45-year-old study. Okay? Wow. And we have the description there. We have now the modern discriminant equations. But our point that this illustrates something, and it is that the, uh, the EEG used appropriately can give information that is easily deployable, low cost, and can be integrated. That, that's our idea into health systems and put at the service of underserved populations no? yeah. all over the world. So that's, you see, so that's how this started at that time. What happened afterwards? Well, I went to... Uh, to NYU, I did my postdoc in NYU 1979, 1980, where we continued working on this sort of thing. I was engaged there, uh, uh, not only in developing the methodology, the multivariate statistics, the EEG frequency analysis, uh, but also in working with micro uh, computers. So the Apple came out and uh, I remember that it, a few days after they started selling it, I was walking with Roy John down the street and we see an apple, and we look at each other and said, this is what we're going to use. <laughs> so we went in, we bought one, and uh, uh, the, the, the NYU engineer, we rigged up an A to D converter, we hooked a small system of EEG, and in, in a month, we had an EEG system running. Wow. <laughs> with an Apple computer. <laughs> And, and then, and what I programmed that was used for five years at Bellevue in the, uh, the coma center was a coma monitoring unit. That was my project as a postdoc. And so we used it multivariate statistics and we would see with continuous EEG using needles, no? we would see the brain state, which we obtained multivariately and then have what we called self norms and then how people would deviate. So these were, these are all topics that have been taken up much better by other people, you know, looking at consciousness, whatever. But it also helped us uh, 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 fix the technology. Yes. So in the 80s, when I returned after my postdoc, uh, what we did was to uh, redesign our system, which was based on a, uh, you know, on a mini computer to a microcomputer and started introducing it into the health system. And there we found some interesting things, no? that not necessarily what scientists think is useful is what clinicians think that's useful. Yes. So there was, there was a year or two of meshing when finally we said, okay, you guys do the specs and then do the quality control. And in the discussion, we convinced them uh, of things. And uh, we set up a network in the country. And the first thing we tackled, uh, because we said, okay, and this is a question that comes up again in discussions uh, in different countries when we want to launch brain initiatives, especially in lower middle income countries, we said, we have to look for an example where we can solve a problem that can't be solved easily any other way and will convince the decision makers. In our case, everything is funded by the government. So the government, in this case, that it's worthwhile and the medical profession. So what we picked was to try to detect hearing loss. And this was, a, this was Mitchell. Uh, my my twin brother's decision. He's very acute in picking out the, the important problems. He said, "Let's try to do 
uh, screening of hearing loss of newborn babies. Huh. The point is that we, de we developed using uh, this microcomputer, a technique to detect the presence of auditory evoke responses. And, uh, and, and then what we did was to implement screening of the Cuban population of kids. Yes. Because the idea that's been behind a lot of our Cuban science is preventive medicine. That is to say, not to put the resources only, let's say at the highest level of hospitals, but also to look for technology and methods and then create a system that can be used to do screening, let's say, in a more massive way. So what we set up was a hearing screening program with the Ministry of uh, Public Health, which uh, took children at risk. And we're now pushing it, but the pandemic has slowed down things. We've been pushing towards universal screening, which is what we think has to be done, which is every child that is born should be screened for a certain number of things. But at that time, what was economic was something we learned from the, uh, from the, uh, the health system in, in the UK. They were doing what they called, uh, they, they were doing a two-stage screening. They were taking children at high risk and then examining them. Uh, so in, in several stages. And that we, we learned something that you can use something that is very widespread, let's say massively, then you've, it's like a screening process in a pyramid. Then you can put more and more technology and that's very cost effective. Yeah, yeah. This is the type of science that uh, we've been doing and, and engage with other people too. So that was something that got us interested in public health. So we were I was interested not only in the math, the, uh, the methods and things like that, but I was also interested in the application of this. Without saying that, I also was interested in doing experiments and developing methods. And the first direction this took is that we decided that we had to go to source analysis. And uh, <clears throat> our Dietrich Lingman, these are names now of people that, that are no longer there. In fact, I have to tell you that in 1990, we had a beautiful meeting in Cuba, which was called, there's a book out there called Machinery of the Mind. Yeah, heard of it, yeah. And then we had, Dietrich Lehman, we had uh, 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 people like uh, Pribram, we had, uh, you know, we had, we had the main people there at a symposium on how to understand the mind and how to use that mind. So that book is, is around there. Now, so Cuba had become, together with New York and Switzerland, you know, like a, there was a lot of going back and forth of ideas. Yes. And one of the ideas was doing source analysis. So our group, started working as usual dipoles and then we sort of moved towards multiple dipoles and then we went into distributed solutions in fact there's a whole school of, uh, of people who have been producing inverse solutions that came from training in, in the cuban neuroscience center people have heard a lot about loretta you know things like that they were these people were trained in that they got their phds in, in the cuban neuroscience center so just to, just to um, jump in really quickly here. I mean, you, you talk about uh, like for screening, for instance, I mean, it, yeah. And that's potentially, you know, extremely useful uh, for many different things and sort of like, right. You can look at trajectories and, 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 but, but the main thing was hearing loss, I guess. And you, you and there were potentially other things uh, as well, but also regarding uh, source analysis, before you go, go into that uh, you might want to talk about the, just before you go into some of the, the issues of source analysis. Um, I've always 
felt like, you know, MEG is easier for source analysis because you don't have to worry about the conductivity differences of the skull and the scalp. And so is that, is that uh, able to be overcome? Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, let me tell you first, it depends on the number of sensors. Already in 1987, at one of the first MEG conferences, uh, Roberto Pascual and Rolando Biscay, they're two of my PhD students now. And Rolando Pascual is the guy behind uh, all the versions of Loretta. And Rolando Biscay is a brilliant mathematician. And they did a study that we presented at the MEG conference on the, let's say, the sensitivity of source analysis, uh, depending on the type of electrodes you use and sensors. And we found that you could always, first, the, the, when you have more sensors of one kind than the other, it has a better full width at half max. It doesn't matter. If you have enough EEG, you can overcome a few MEGs. Second, we, we saw that if you combine EEG and MEG together, which is difficult technically, the problem that, that, is, that is very difficult with, let's say, the traditional uh, run-of-the-mill uh, MEG systems because of the way it's recorded. Now with the optically pumped systems, I envisage, I mean, many people have started doing vicious joint EEG, MEG systems. Yep. You're looking at different, you're looking at different parts of the, uh, of the fields that are produced by the primary uh, currents of the brain. So uh, the theory says, and, you know, and all these measurements say that yes, you can get improvement, but uh, EEG has been, let's say, a bit beaten about. about. Uh, there's a paper we have in narrow image, it's called uh, Bayesian model average. And that's instructive because we compare EEG, MEG with different methods. And uh, we find that it's about 25, for 19 electrodes, 25 millimeters is the full width at half max. That's not, that's not to throw the thing out, okay? And, uh, and, and, and there's a point where it asymptotes, okay? So the, uh, with EEG, there's been a trend and it's important to have more electrodes, but that makes it difficult technologically on the one hand, and second, there's uh, diminishing returns. After you have about, uh, let's say, maybe 50 electrodes, then you get a lot of unusable electrodes and so forth. So yeah. at first, I think that the EEG needs a better recording, you know, active uh, electrodes, it has to use dry electrodes, and I still think there's a lot to do that. I think that optical uh, pumped uh, magnetometers are also a new player in the game, but it's all electrophysiology. I mean, you're going to have to solve the inverse problem. And then uh, I've seen how over the years, the initial wild estimates of source localization have become converging and you get more and more similar results. We don't have enough, since I'm saying this, one of the, the difficulties for source analysis, it, there, that's, there's not much gold truth and in, in the set you know there's not it, it, we were able to analyze with now Takafuhi from Bricket this preparation I think you remember where we have 128 electrocorticogram electrodes and we have the 1020 system and then we can look at uh, so there's a sort of ground truth here but there's not enough experiments because the people that do the let's say the laminar recording the people that do the intracranial recording they're focused on certain areas, of course, while the EEG and the MEG are, you know, they, they, their field of view is large. So there's a, there's a contradiction here between what drives uh, the studies, uh, let's say, of electrophysiology uh, in vivo, in, vivo in, in, in preparations, you know, 
yeah. and experimental organizations and the clinical work. And then the other stuff goes with epilepsy, where, which is a very special circumstance. No? Uh, fortunately, there are databases now available of, of joint EEG, electrocorticogram, of electrocorticogram of different types of recording. But I'm optimistic about this. The methods are improving. The yeah. convergence between them is, is greater and greater. And the technology is improving. The technology is improving. Much faster, I have to say, for the MEG than for the EEG. We're still, we're still stuck, uh, more or less, I'd say, for 10 years at the same level of technological development. But the MEG has really pulled ahead very well. Well, and it seems that with EEG, if you could, you know, make a, you know, a, a, make, it seems like it's very easy to make now a, a very precise model of, of each person's head and, and you can get a little bit further that way. But I actually have, you know, I've, I've always had sort of this question of, you know, is source, is, is finding, doing source analysis even the right, you know, you're assuming that there's, there's these dipole sources. Is it, you know, what if, what if, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's two questions I usually have with regard to EEG and one is, uh, you know, what if the source is sort of distributed among some complicated geometry and, and how does that manifest? And, and the other one is having the connection, you know, with EEG, you're looking at, you know, oscillations and, uh, and, and it seems that how do you bridge the gap between spiking uh, in specific areas versus, you know, oscillatory? I guess that's one of the big questions in terms of what, what do these oscillations actually mean and, and how do, are they produced? Uh, uh, you know, from spiking in that regard. Let me start from the last question. Uh, the relation of spiking and, you know, slow potentials, that's a common problem, not for EEG and MEG, but also for fMRI. Yeah. You know, ever since the work of uh, Nikos, no? Uh, looking at what part, you know, of the, uh, of the, of the intracranial recording is in monkeys is related to the fMRI. So, and it, it seems that now, every once in a while, there's, you know, you, we need to take into consideration the spiking, but a lot of it is that the, uh, there's a lot of consensus that the main portion comes from uh, the summation of postsynaptic potentials, not for all types of brain imaging, okay? Now, that, if you have uh, very high frequency recordings, then it becomes different because then you start to resolve, uh, let's say, more of the spiking activity. Now, so I don't think it's a problem unique to EEG or MEG. It's, to, it's one of the problems of doing in vivo uh, measurements. No? Uh, now, regarding what you were saying uh, 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 before, no? Okay, so the problem is that uh, uh, it's not dipole versus distributed sources. They're now, with machine learning techniques, you have the mixture of all of it. In fact, we in the, uh, in the, in the, in the early 90s, introduced a form of solution, which is uh, the combination in statistical terms of a minimum norm solution, let us say a ridge regression with the lasso, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the L1 norm, sparse solutions. And that could find either dipoles or distributed solutions. Okay. Now, there is a problem that uh, all of the inverse solutions depend on the assumptions you put in. The better knowledge you have, the better you get. If you have the guy's individual uh, uh, anatomy, then you can get much better results than if you're working, let's say, with uh, a statistical template. But you can't get results with a statistical template. Yes. In fact, that was that was uh, in '93 when you know when Alan and Arthur and all those guys started to to work on ICBM. You know the uh, 
the, uh, the International Consortium for Brain Mapping, we hitched on immediately. And uh, well, it, we became very good friends with, with Alan and with Keith Worsley, no? Yes. And we started using their uh, statistical atlases to do in results. And it improved incredibly with respect to just, you know, not having any information. But the other information that's important is the connectivity because there's a problem. And I classify the inverse methods and generations according to whether you pose any sort of connectivity. And then uh, I call this first generation methods. This is uh, our own Vareta, Loreta, because what you do is you say, you say the sources are independent. Yeah. Then you do the inverse solution and then you calculate the connectivity. Okay. What we've been working on currently is a third generation methods where you have to estimate the connectivities too. Yes. And you can use, and you can use this prior information. Oh, that's cool. What you have yeah. from DTI. That's, and then let me tell you, we have, this is a, a paper that we, we, we have it in an open bioarchive if anybody's interested. No, we've already submitted it to, to several journals because it took a lot of painstaking corroboration. And what we found is that you get orders of magnitude of increase in accuracy, both of connections and activation, if you estimate the connectivities. Yeah. And we, we checked this with this monkey ECOG. So what did we do? We said, okay, with 19 electrodes, just 19 electrodes, what is the method? What, how well do you predict connectivity on the ECOG? Yeah. Where you, of course, have to model physically the lead field for the ECOG and for the EEG, for both. Yes, And what we found is that uh, the methods that have been so useful in uh, multiomics and machine learning, you know, the use of structured sparsity, the, a series of things, plus some common sense knowledge about how the brain is arranged, yeah. it, it increases uh, things a lot. Huh. The, 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 the way this is going to go, the way I think it's going to go is that the more information we have in large databases about individuals, and statistical properties of the brain, the more prior information, because the essence of an inverse solution is that you're solving an inverse problem. Yeah. That has to have, an inverse problem is ill-determined. You need to put prior information. Yes. That prior information can be statistical, you know, from a population if you don't, or it can be specific to an individual. Yeah. Let me tell you, we're in a cool project now. You just, uh, you know, jacked my mind. That uh, is something that's being headed by Catherine uh, Ammons and, 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 and Alan Evans, ah. and it's the Big Brain Project. Yeah. So, so what we've done, we're, we're part of something called Work Package 5. And what, one of the things we've done is already using Big Brain Anatomy, we're doing inverse solutions. And what we hope in the near future is that as information comes out about cytoactotectonics, uh, you know, receptor topography, we're going to build that in. Right, because the other direction this has to go is that you just don't do an inverse solution. The inverse solution is the solution to the observation equation. What's important is the dynamical equation of neural interactions. Yes, and the modeling is going. You know, it's a state-space model. The engineers always separate these things. We've been talking about the observation equation and its inversion. Let me ask a couple of questions here. Um, so, one, when you talk about connectivity, so. You know, certainly now, even, you know, in the context of doing like layer fMRI, people suggest, oh, well, you know, gamma frequencies might be feed forward and, and uh, lower frequencies might be feed back. And, and so is there a frequency dependence in terms of also of looking at connectivity? Yeah, it's, it's definite. And, and in fact, uh, when I was thinking about uh, optically pumped, no, OPM, they, there's some cool papers now 
uh, precisely by Gareth Barnes, you know, his group, where they have actually looked at layer-specific uh, inverse solutions of MEG. Yes, okay? I've, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. It really has us all excited, no? Yes, yes. Uh, but, but I think that uh, what I'm a bit of what I'm saying is that the more information we bring in, like what you're saying, the type of connections, this idea, for example, this Big Brain project to try to align all of the different images, no? Around the, and then this is prior information. And you, 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 you can look at the posterior distribution after you've uh, used the Bayes theorem yeah. to see how much actually depends on the data and how much you're guessing. When, you're, when your posterior distribution is spread all over the place, that means that your priors have really are doing the job, not the, not the data, not the information. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, that's, that's cool. That's very cool. And also, and, and there's one other aspect that I think is potentially super profound, potentially, is that, you know, I, you know, I was recently talking to some people doing uh, computational modeling. And, and the idea there is, uh, you know, there's this fundamental idea is that you might have, you know, these, you know, many different scales of networks in the brains. And, and even, you know, neuronal ensembles, they have, you know, maybe our memories are stored as attractor states and attractors. And when you have attractors, you know, you have oscillations and, and it might be sort of a, a, a signature of, you know, these attractor states sort of Varying. I mean, the, the idea is once again trying trying to go from individual neurons communicating with each other to to create this oscillation that sort of is, is a sign of a of an attractor state in some sense. Uh, I don't know. I agree. Okay. No, no, no. I agree. And uh, the problem here, you, you touched on the important thing, which is the uh, the crossing scales. Okay. And the problem is that that's one of the things that we discussed recently uh, with Rainer Google with with another. We had a seminar. With, what was one of the big problems that we still don't have ways, systematic ways of crossing scales? Yep. So, for example, the narrow mass models that we've worked with uh, and we've connected even at the brain level, uh, they're very simplistic. It's just saying that there's a, you know, postsynaptic potentials integrating and you have a threshold, which is a square thing. You have a distribution of thresholds. It becomes a sigmoid function. That's very primitive. And a lot of what we're doing with there is the problem uh, that was recognized, you know, when there was neural network theory, and then people realized that it was actually a non-parametric estimation and that the sigmoid function could be substituted by any other function, the rel function, uh, you know, what they call squashing functions. And what you were getting is non-parametric estimation. So that, that is a problem. Now, what I think, uh, uh, what we're working on now also is this problem of scales. Uh, we published a paper, uh, a review in human brain mapping a number of years ago, where we showed that some characteristics of the uh, of joint EEG and uh, fMRI recordings could be explained uh, in terms of neural masses connected using realistic uh, diffusion tensor imaging connectivity at the voxel level. That was... This was 2009. Yes. But I think we have to have new generation uh, neural mass models that are based on lower level uh, simulations. Uh, that's, that, these are the ideas we're working on now. Yeah, I was also, you know, one other idea, I just, I figured might as well ask one, uh, uh, something also that occurred to me a, a while I've been trying to think of is, you know, it seems like a brute force approach, but as opposed to trying to do inverse modeling, is there any way of just 
creating a dictionary of you know EEG patterns that are associated with bold activation patterns, and then just have this sort of lookup table of you know try to make it a a feed forward you know a, a forward problem, but just have an extensive lookup table of EEG states with uh, activation patterns. Sure, you lose you lose a bit of the biophysics there, but that's a that's a powerful approach. Uh, that's why I say that though I like source analysis, and for example, I hate the term scalp co connectivity because the electrodes and the EEG are not connected with anything but the amplifiers. No. Yeah. So, uh, so I. But that doesn't mean you can't look at correlations, which is different from brain connectivity, and you can look at the patterns of nonlinear association and do classification of states. Yeah. However, once you have a number of states that's large. Then you're also solving an inverse problem. Yep, yep, yep. Because, they're all, because then it's a, it's a, it, the dictionaries are always overcomplete. In fact, there's a funny there's a funny parallelism between methods that have been developed, let's say for time frequency analysis, for geophysics, and the EEG inverse problem, and they have different names, and they you know people sometimes think they're different, but basically it's always that you have, uh, let's say dipoles. That's a dictionary of a certain type that produces potential fields in the brain. ICA, that's another dictionary where there's been a reduction of dimensionality. But then many times you have, it's over complete when you pull over, uh, for example, uh, Scott's, uh, uh, he has this huge dictionary you know, of, of ICA patterns that are, uh, are supervised. And then when you get all this sort of thing, you always have to solve an inverse problem. Now, the point is, do you want to put the biophysics of measurement and then always, the, the test, the litmus test to know if you're solving a biophysical problem is if you're considering the measurement equation, the lead field. If you're not, it's pattern recognition, it's fine. It can be very useful. If you want to know something about where it's happening in the brain, then you have to put in the measurement process, the lead field, and then it becomes an EEG inverse problem. But they're all inverse problems because they're always all overdetermined. You never have enough data yep. for, the, for the amount of variables you're measuring. That's a that's a good point. That's a that's a really good point. Um, just to uh, deviate a little bit here, I mean, you've also been doing a lot of, you know, collaboration and just to, uh, with a lot of other sort of modalities as well. And there's one paper that stood out. I just figured I might as well just highlight one of the papers, um, uh, or maybe two. But one is from Human Brain Mapping in 2019. This uh, really interesting idea that uh, crystallized fluid intelligence is predicted by microstructure. microstructure of specific white matter tracks. So you're basically looking at the fractional anisotropy in white matter tracks. In white matter yes. tracks. Uh, that's that's fascinating. And and I don't know if you want to mention that a little, talk about it a little bit, but the idea of that is is that somehow uh, I and I'm I'm assuming it's it's possibly correlated with anisotropy where where you know the more ordered the white matter tracks are the you know it correlates with higher intelligence. It, it usually is. There's there's some there's one exception that we couldn't find a good explanation for. But yes, it is. Here the interesting thing was that I mean this is what the, the, the editors I mean the uh, the reviewers the editors liked for first it's in a population that's not the usual population. This is a population from Latin America and the Caribbean. This is something we've been doing, which is putting data from Cuba, Latin America, up in the public domain to, to increase the, uh, the phenotypic and genotypic uh, diversity. Second, uh, many, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of work done on intelligence and different measures of, uh, of, uh, 
of brain structure and activity. But uh, unfortunately, I don't know why, but some decisions made by the big brain projects, uh, you know, they're cast in stone. So one of the things was that there wasn't a clear separation. And let's say, for example, some of the big projects in crystallized and, uh, and uh, fluid intelligence. Yeah. So the first thing we did, we used, we used uh, structural equation modeling. First, we identified that it was necessary to separate these two latent constructs. And then the latent constructs were put into, uh, we looked at the relation with the different white matter tracks. Uh, and what we looked was at average uh, fractional anisotropy across these tracks. Now, uh, we did find very significant positive relations. There's one relation which is a bit uh, difficult to interpret, but of course, this could be due to a confounding variable. You know, the problem with determining causality is yeah. very difficult, unless you're, you're sure. So th this, is, this was quite keen. It's part of something. Yeah. Everyone assumes that in white matter, the fractional anisotropy is sort of constant. It's sort of, you know, enough to identify the white matter, and then they haven't looked at that. So that was, that was interesting. No, no, no. Well, you know that it's not exactly the same, and you have right. to look at the average. And, and uh, you know that this is better than I do. There's much better uh, ideas about microstructure now than fractional anisotropy. And this brings to mind something that uh, I'd like to talk about, which is something that I really think of in the research domain, which is that we can't uh, study each modality alone. We have to look at multimodal imaging. Yes. That's my interest in diffusion-weighted imaging and fMRI and structural imaging. And the important thing here, I think, is that the way to link these could be empirically, which is fine, but it can also be model-driven. Yep. And for me, that's very important. Yeah. Because if you have the model and then generate the forward models for each of the modalities, then you can have a principle. I mean, you need both. You need to see what associations there are, but you also have to do it that way. And uh, we have a very uh, cool paper, I found it, which is the one where we, in neural image, where we looked at uh, surface area and, uh, and white matter microstructure related to the alpha rhythm. Yes, cortical thickness as well. Yeah. And uh, this one, why I find it interesting, because it, it starts with, a very good friend of mine who had the idea or has the idea in one of the embodiments of his models. His name is Paul Lunis. He started neurophysics, I think. He was yeah. the guy that really, he yeah. started neurophysics. We're, we're great friends. And, but he had one of his simple uh, models is that the alpha rhythm is a standing wave and therefore the cortical area should be proportional to the frequency, the peak frequency of the alpha rhythm, which is an interesting biomarker because it's high, highly heritable. It's very stable. It's the most stable of nearly all the, uh, the biological, uh, uh, physiological uh, psychology measures. But it is modulatable though. I mean, it is, you know, you, it does, you know, your eyes open, eyes closed, whatever. I mean. Um, yes, but once you have it in one state, let's say eyes closed, let's say eyes closed. It is highly constant. It develops over age. It changes over age, but it's the pattern is highly heritable. It's the, it's very heritable. Yeah. Now, what? Yeah, it, it, it's it's you know the, the genetics determine it. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, we looked at in this paper with about three hundred subjects that we did EEG. I mean, at the time we did that study, there weren't many EEG and multi you know large databases. So we had this database which is small by today's standards, the Cuban human brain mapping data which is now, by the way, publicly available. 
through nature scientific data. This, so, so anybody can go back and check what we did. Uh, the idea was that we had EEG, we had tractography, we had anatomy, we had some fMRI, but we concentrated. Okay, is there a relation between the surface volume and the surface area and the alpha peak? No, we didn't find it. Zero. Okay. But that doesn't mean it's not a good theory. Yeah. Because a good biophysical theory is falsifiable. And now later, very soon after, uh, Paul came up with a modification, but that's the way you go. You test that one. Yep. Now, but what we did find was, and here we were, we were using uh, methods to look at the correlation of the peak of the alpha with the white matter tracks, okay? And uh, using structured uh, sparsity, you know, machine learning methods. Yes. And we found that there was there a correlation. So there was a, a, a significant regression. Uh, a regression a between what and what? Um, so alpha rhythm peak and... Uh, and in certain tracks, in certain tracks, the fractional anisotropy. Here we did voxel by voxel in white matter. Interesting. So, so this, we didn't, I mean, this sort of thing, I think, can be continued. But what was the idea? The idea here was to try to find the correlates of electrophysiology that are determined by structural imaging, other types of imaging. Let me, let me give you an example of something that the neurophysiologists know. When you measure the latency of the somatosensory evoked potential, you measure the guy's arm or the, the girl's arm, you know, you measure it because it takes longer. Yes. So you can't, you, you have to. So if you're going to measure brain activity, let's say using the G or fMRI, the, the structural, you know, that's necessary to understand. Yes. And uh, I, think that's, I think this is very useful. In that paper you suggested, yeah, you suggested it was a cortical, thalmocortical cycle in some sense, maybe uh, that alpha waves. Yeah, yeah because that, that is also another friend of ours. You know, they have friendly arguments, which is uh, Peter Robinson versus uh, Paul. They discuss, you know, is it a thalamocortical circuit or is it, a, a, is it this global standing phenomenon? It could be both, you know. Yes. But, okay, we did this experiment. We say, okay, the evidence tends toward the thalamocortical circuit, the delay. Now, this also can be, you know, this can be put into a model and falsified. But I, I think this is very important to try to pull together yeah. uh, the different imaging modalities through models. Yes. It will also yeah. increase the, the explanatory variable. Because as in the example I told you about the somatosensory of potential, that is a, the length of the arm of the person you're measuring introduces a variability. That's a, that's a nuisance variable. Yes. When you get rid of the nuisance variable, then you can concentrate on the real things. And so I think that's how I can encapsulate the idea that multimodal modeling, uh, subserved by, by, uh, by modeling, no, could be a way to get re, uh, rid of a lot of sources. Of, uh, now, the other point that we make in that paper is that we're not surprised that the alpha rhythm peak, you know, it, it, I can tell you, we've measured this from age five to 97, and we've done it now again for nine countries, the same story. The alpha peak increase is first, there isn't an alpha peak, there's a theta peak. It turns into alpha peak, it increases in height huh. and in frequency, and in older age, it diminishes, it's like a, regre a, a regression. It, it diminishes in size and decreases. Now, what, what comes to mind with this? Many people have speculated. It's myelination. Oh, that's interesting. It could be other things. It could be uh, receptor dance, whatever. But 
an important fact that seems to stand out and fits in with what we showed, it's the it's myelination, it's speed of connections, you know, it's what are the delays in circuits, you know, reverberating circuits that produce oscillations. Now, if we, if, if we don't measure this and if we don't know it, it's a source of unexplained variance that confuses the results. Yeah, and, and, and it's mostly alpha that you measure just because it's the strongest signal. I mean, you can imagine this could be in other frequencies too, but maybe not. Well, we look at all frequencies. The normative data we have is for all frequencies. And there's a very popular model now, uh, which uh, Brad Wojtek has brought again to the forefront, which is that you have to separate this one over F type activity from the peaks in the spectrum. Oh, interesting. And this is something that was already mentioned in the 70s by Sederberg. Actually, uh, Roberto Pascual, while he was working with me in, in Cuba, we published papers on essentially the same model that's being now popular, and we looked at the development. Now, you have the, at least what we found at that time, we're, we're confirming that, is that you have like an increase, a change in that, I don't like to call it one over F activity. I, I think this is one of the problems where it comes with a connotation and you can produce that type of activity with an autoregressive model of order two, yes. of order one, I'm sorry. Yeah. So sometimes you can describe the same thing mathematically, but then some of the mathematical descriptions have more exciting connotations, but not necessarily they are an explanation. Yeah. So this one, this decreasing activity, which we call the C process, this is a paper from the early, uh, from the late uh, 80s. And then you have peaks. And uh, it, it, so there are different parts and you can describe them, no? Yeah. Uh, now, of course, this was in looking at uh, stationary uh, segments, quasi-stationary segments. We have now time frequency analysis and it becomes more complicated. Yeah. We, and we, we're looking now at more interesting things like uh, nonlinear couplings between frequencies and stuff. But yes, there are different parts to the, uh, the EEG. Yeah, okay. and as you say, it's it's all kind of driven. I mean, in some sense, you're you know, you're building this model. You're building you know a model from all you know trying to build the scales. You're trying to build the structure. You're trying to build you know the causality of what's you know what is what is generating these. What's and then and also you put in age, and and cognition, and even you have a paper on you know phases of cognition, like you know ma mental mathematics and different frequencies. Yeah, it seems like right. There's just the very beginnings of this sort of model and, and uh, being built and, and maybe it will click in and it will all become clear at some point. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. You got me excited about something. You know? <laughs> um, well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. So, um, so you're in, you're in right now, you're actually in, in Chengdu, China. Uh, so you're not in Cuba and you might want to maybe if you want to talk a little bit about uh, you know why you're there and how long you're there or if you're collaborating and and what's what is the you know it looks like your work is the Cuba China Canada EEG consortium trying to do EEG harmonization. Okay, very briefly. Okay, I started. Uh, we've been collaborating with Chinese labs since the '90s. Okay, in fact, uh, the first uh, quantitative EEG systems, the first digital EEG systems introduced into China were from Cuba. <laughs> this was in the 90s, 89, 90. <laughs> <laughs> <Great. laughs> So the thing is that, no, they now have a huge technological, you know, they really leaped forward. But since 2011, I started collaborating with several groups here. And we came up with the idea that uh, we could create a joint lab 
which we call the China-Cuba lab, but it's actually an international lab. And uh, that led uh, to creating the Cuba-China-Canada uh, project uh, to try to promote multimodal databases that will be available through the Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform to developing countries okay. and to look at health. This, this came out of a meeting that you probably remember perfectly well that uh, was carried out at the World Health Organization, which was, you know, the brain projects mean meet the World Health Organization. And I was one of the organizers, you know, Carl Zills, Al, and a bunch of us were involved in that. Yes. And uh, a bit what we, we, we identified is what were the gaps in the large brain projects that might, uh, let's say, be uh, impeding or slowing down that these brain projects have an impact on global health. So what we decided was to create this, uh, this group. I decided to create this lab. I was traveling back and forth, let's say every three months. And this has slowed down due to the pandemic, okay? Yeah. And uh, so actually I still work with my lab daily in Cuba. Okay. And I work with people here, you know, yeah. that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a bit of a stress. Yeah. And then from the CCC, but, but I think it's necessary. And also because uh, the lab has students from Turkey, from Pakistan, and we have students from Africa. So it's become an international lab. And what we try to teach people is the basics of neurophysiology, of neuroscience, and how they can use different technologies to see when they work in their countries, if they can apply this to the problems we're concerned about. Yes. Actually, the, um, the CCC has then grown into something called the Global Brain Consortium. And uh, there's a web page for that. You can look up Global Brain Consortium where we have our main projects. Yes. We've had several meetings. And it, once again, it's this mandate that uh, we have to look for ways to, to accelerate the introduction of the results of brain research into global public health yeah. without ignoring the basic questions that have to be asked. So th th this, is, this is what I'm doing essentially here. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's fun, you know. Yeah, is there any so so right? I mean, uh, I mean, there's two points there. It's like right one um, in terms of how to make an impact on on public health, and two, you know, a lot of people with fMRI data, they're trying to do you know pooling of data and, and pulling out biomarkers. And is there any hope of you know, you know certainly EEG data can be pooled? Are how are people using it, and are they extracting potential biomarkers? Could be useful all over the place all over the place you probably saw this paper in science where you could do fingerprinting identify somebody by a few seconds of EEG. it just came out uh, yes. recently yes so there's more and more of this and what's really needed are uh, international initiatives uh, that are as strong as for actually the the F fmri has led the way in federated data open science we need that same sort of thing yes for EEG. One thing that's really crucial for EEG, and it's something that we're pushing in the GBC and the Global Brain Concern. And in fact, Alan, uh, who's with me as the copy of the uh, of the uh, of the Global Brain Consortium, uh, just organized uh, something in Canada called EEG Net. That is a so the idea of EEG Net is something that Scott McKay, that who's part of GBC, that I that Mike Milham, there's a bunch of us that are interested, is that we have to have data publicly available and that EEG data has to be annotated. 
by a bunch of experts so that then we can do some sort of real meaningful, uh, let's say, uh, extraction of biomarkers, deep learning, and so forth. Now, so what do you mean by annotated as far as that's concerned? So is it sort of like labeled? It's labeled. Uh, for example, what is the biggest problem and still in EEG? It's artifacts. I mean, it's a problem for any type of yeah. measurement, okay? Yeah, but definitely. But, but definitely, uh, you, let's say you clench your teeth and you're, 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 you're moving your eyes and you're moving your head, you get artifacts. And this is one of the major problems. Now, this is a, a, a not totally solved problem. So, and in fact, there's a bunch of methods to try to eliminate them automatically, but at the end, they rely uh, by visual inspection. Right. Yep. Uh, this is something you can't avoid, but if you're going to do something that's deployable, that you don't need a lot of technical expertise, you have to solve this problem to a greater degree. Now, how do you do that? It, the problem is that you put two GEG technicians who are certified, and they will come up with different annotations, yes. different. Yes. And then, and then another very interesting feature is that there's some things that are called grapho elements. Now, what are these grapho elements? They're sharp waves, you know, they're, they're things that have shape. They're, they're, there's squiggles in the EEG recording that mean things to people that have a lot of expertise. Yes. And, uh, but these also, there's ambiguity. It's like a fuzzy thing. So a public annotation of these EEG features coupled with the use of the modern methods for looking at biomarkers is going to be great. Yeah. There's a paper, there's a paper that just came out two days ago. I have it here with me, which it came out in Giga Science, which is about trying to search for biomarkers uh, unsupervised. Yeah, right. That's that's exciting. Um, I can imagine even you could have unsupervised, you know, machine learning approaches that identify, the, you know, annotate these these signals and also pull out, you know. You should compare against something, right? And second, and second, you're not going to gain the trust of the clinical people yeah. if you don't show some level of congruence. The one I'm mentioning is by Dadi. It's called population modeling with machine learning can enhance measures of mental health. Huh. This is a cool paper. Yeah, uh, this is a cool, but. That's the sort of thing, you know. Uh, that, uh, let's see, Daniel Stock is on there. Some of our other friends are there. And so I think that there's going to be, with artificial intelligence, a revolution in this whole thing. But it has to be grounded on gaining the trust, but also getting the experience of people who are in the field doing this. Yes. And, and of course, we came up with a model for sharing data which was quite interesting. That's, that's something we're doing now, which is doing a multinational normative data set. Okay. It has nine countries. The idea was to share a only very high level descriptive statistics and, method, and anonymized metadata, not the raw data. Okay. Not the raw data. So what we did was to create, we've, we've now finished this. It's on the webpage of the Global Brain Consortium. We've submitted it for publication. It's, nine countries, about 13 or 14 sites, devices that are different. It's EEG, very simple, 19 electrodes, eyes closed. The people only share a summary statistic in the frequency domain, which is known as the cross spectrum. It is to say the cross spectrum and the spectrum for the 19 electrodes for a certain number of frequencies. That's the only thing they share. And then we use machine learning techniques to pick out the outliers that, had, that allowed us to go back and say, hey, 
you guys have something wrong. And they say, oops, yes, we switched the order of the electrodes. <laughs> that was really cool. That was really cool because it shows the direction and things where things are moving. We've confirmed much of the earlier work, but now the sample size is 1,700, which is much larger than the 300. I mean, not that much larger, but and it's from nine countries. And what we're doing, this is an experiment that people can share data. You know that there's, a, you know, there's always this, and a way of sharing data that overcomes some of the recent, uh, let's say, uh, qualms that people have about uh, privacy, etc. No? And, uh, and it's a cool project. We're, we, we have fun with it, okay? But also, we had, uh, uh, we've caught up. We think that the whole deal of harmonization, that is to say, how sites that are different, and this the people that put this into, let's say, the public consciousness are bioinformatics people with their batches of analysis. Yes. But then it's spilled over to, to MRI, to fMRI, to, to the fusion-weighted imaging. What we found is that there is a batch effect. Now, what we found uh, in, uh, by testing uh, the classification of subjects is that you still get reasonable area under the ROC curve discriminating, let's say, an independent sample of normal and controls. But if you do batch correction, the AUC goes up, the area under the ROC curve goes up dramatically. Okay, okay. So there still is a difference between, you know, sites or, or vendors or, you know, systems. Or exactly, exactly. And what we think we can do is get a dictionary of vendors or whatever, and then you're doing an independent study, then you say, okay, I have to do batch correction according, because that's what we did. We actually tested this using two nearby countries, which is Cuba and Barbados. It's an example I told you about. Yeah. And what we use is, okay, they, they, they more or less both come from Africa. You know, we use the same type of equipment. You know, let's use the Cuban, uh, let's say, uh, harmonization data, you know, yeah. to, to harmonize the data from Barbados. And it improved the classification. So we were right because the equipment was very similar and, and everything. So what we think is that eventually, if there's cooperation, there will be, a, let's say, a dictionary or something. Or you can even look to see which, which of, the, uh, of, the, of the batch corrections you should use. And then there's a basic part, which is, uh, uh, let's say, the common structure, which is independent of batch. And that, that's what's being done with the harmonization. And we have those groups and they look beautiful. Uh, they look really cool. Uh, we've, we're doing this, by the way, using a Romanian geometry representation of cross-spectral matrices. Okay. Because, because the cross-spectral matrices are covariance matrices in the Fourier domain. Therefore, they're not in Euclidean space. They're in a curved space. And what we do is that we take it to the tangent space of this manifold. And that's where we do all the, the statistics. It's really cool. I mean, mathematically, also, yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. It's cool. That's that's cool, and it and it's it seems like right. I mean, there's a lot of people working on it, but not. You know, I feel like there's there's armies of people working on fMRI data, but uh, but it seems that there's it's still. I haven't heard about a lot of uh, you know this type of work with the EEG data, but it seems like like you're saying it's growing rapidly, and which is great. It's growing rapidly, and what you but what you see is that there's more coordination in the fMRI world, right? Okay, somebody told me this, Paolo Rossini, the guy who's running, who was the president of the IFCN, of the International Federation of Clinical Neurophysiology, and uh, we had a symposium recently. He's now running an EEG uh, prediction of conversion to Alzheimer in Italy. 
with a very large sample. Wow. Right. And he's a clinical neurophysiologist. And he said, look, we have the disadvantage that uh, when uh, MRI came out, you know, it, it boiled down to a few vendors and it was, it was easier to get them to agree. Yeah. In EEG, yeah. there are hundreds of different systems and there's a lot of fragmentation. So part of the problem is subjective, uh, you know, part of that. And, uh, and then, of course, there's not that many large databases as uh, there are in the public domain that people... But now, uh, Arno Wilringer, uh, Mike Milham, ourselves, we've made public our data. Okay. In fact, I use that data. And I think that's the trend. I think people will catch on to this. Okay? Yeah. Or even having... A, I, mean, it, I mean, it seems so it's ironic because EEG is one of the easiest things. To, I mean, it's relatively cheap, more cheap than less expensive than, than MRI and PET and everything. And, and it seems like it would be great to have a multimodal data set where you can actually, uh, you know, exactly. as well. Exactly. And also where you could, uh, because always I see this, that you use the EEG in certain circumstances as part of a system where you may end up, you may be doing screening and then you can end up using other techniques. You have to know how the EEG or let's say the FNIRS, let's say less expensive techniques relate to the more, you have to calibrate them. Yeah. And we, we did this in the 90s in Cuba when there was only one CAT scan. And we showed that we could detect uh, the presence of something bad in the brain uh, using EEG. And that you could use that as an additional criteria besides, because you never can get rid of the clinical opinion to send people to get a CAT scan, let's say for a brain tumor. Yes. And uh, so you see, if you have the different types of technology, you can use it at different levels to answer different questions with different levels of confidence. Yeah. And, and there, was a, there was a backlash in the US in the 70s when all these methods of quantitative EG came out because some of the vendors of the equipment started saying that this would do psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. And that's absurd. There's no single technique that will do it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's always, it's always, you know, for the sake of advertising and selling things, you, you oversell and then, and then, and then there's a backlash, but, but I think, right. I, I actually do feel there's, there's a huge amount of potential there's, and, you know, there's a huge amount of information in, in that signal, as you're saying, and we're still figuring it out. And it's, uh, it's, it's exciting just to, just to sort of, you know, towards getting towards the end uh, of this, uh, uh, of this podcast, um, you know, I just wanted to sort of uh, talk a little bit about, um, in general, uh, when I visited uh, uh, Cuba about seven years ago with, with your workshop, I was impressed. I mean, you were, you were mentioning as well uh, the, the Cuban medical system, uh, how uh, it seems, I mean, it's, it seems like it effectively, you know, deals with, uh, uh, you know, like you're saying, they have the, the national screening and, and there's things that are, that are well organized and, and able to be nimble. Uh, to respond to the public health issues, uh, I don't know if you wanted to to uh, talk a little bit about that. Just to, you know, your perspective of interacting with sure. It, it's it's a unique experience. I think it's one of the unique experiences, and probably others in the world, where it's a poor country, a lower middle income country, constrained by resources, but uh, there's let's say there's a public health system, and then what what's been done is to match the work of the research institutes that go not only, you visited several of them, no? Where it's not only doing, let's say, advanced research, but it's also looking for solutions for primary health care. Yes. And uh, but that requires, okay, people tend to fly in different directions. That requires 
a political will of putting people together and getting them to learn to, to work together. Yeah. And it, it's, it's not easy. Now, the, the problem is that some countries have very, they have public health, but then they don't have, they haven't been forced to develop the technology or they don't have the large research institutes. And there's some countries that have very good research, but they don't have good, uh, let's say a good public health. Yes. They, they have good, they could have good high level health, but then when some when a tsunami like the COVID uh, pandemic comes in, you see the gaps that yep. you need to have public health also. You have the different levels. So I think our experience is interesting in terms of uh, combining science, uh, combining public health, and trying to prevent disease. Because this is a mantra we repeat: it's easier to, it's easier, less expensive, and more effective to prevent disease than to cure it when it's an advanced stage. That's the ideal. Uh, I think we've done quite well. An example now under tremendous stress has been the pandemic, which uh, we were doing very well. The Delta variant got in and has created problems, yeah. but our own, uh, we have a problem which is still there, which is the trade embargo of the US. That, that's a problem. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, I have to say, uh, first we developed our own vaccines. We have 10 vaccines of which three or four are already, some of them have been tested, let's say in other countries like Iran, yep. 92% efficacy. We're, we're now in November, we should reach 90% of the population vaccinated without vaccine hesitancy because uh, let's say uh, uh, in Cuba, uh, doctors are not seen as people who are trying to get money out of people. It's, it's, they're seen as people who are doing a service. Yeah. There's a lot of public education about this, about the importance of science. And uh, we're now, we, we were the first country to start vaccinating kids five years forward. Now, related, and, and, oh, our center, we have 3D printers. I think you saw them, though, that yes. we use for neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. We, we started producing ventilators for ICUs. Oh, wow. Okay. Because we couldn't buy them right. because of the trade embargo. And, and our engineers went over the place and started installing our home grow, which we obtained thanks to international solidarity because the designs for 3D printers and everything was an open source. Yep. People would talk to each other. This was wonderful. This is how scientists, you know, trying to solve people's problems, get together and solve it. You know, I think that was wonderful. Yeah. We are doing a very uh, interesting study, which is a longitudinal study of patients that had COVID and of, let's say, relatives that were suspected of having COVID but were proved PCR negative. It's going now. The second part of the study will be a, a year later. And uh, the thing is that we have found, we're, I mean, the, the situation with, uh, with long COVID and uh, what I call brain-induced brain disorders, I like, I, that's a term uh, we just wrote for the National Science Review. This is a large uh, National Science Review is the Chinese mainstream, let's say, equivalent of science or nature. It has 17 impact factors. So, uh, uh, so Alan Evans, Mitchell Valdez, my twin, yep. a guy called Booming Poo, who you probably, you may not know, he's very famous in monkey work, and, uh, and myself, we published a paper which is an international call for research on COVID induced brain disorders. And the point we're making is that there's so many people with this disease and it's such a complicated entanglement, social, psychological, and perhaps brain-induced 
problems yeah. that that to deal with this in a public health fashion and, and brain research has to face up to the to the yeah. challenge. Yeah, yeah. No, it seems like there's a huge amount of work to be done. This is an example that, that you know what we did was uh, this call to action is that we just reminded people of the same points we discussed at the World Health Organization. It is if you have a large burden of disease of people that are in underserved uh, situations, and they're not only in lower and middle income countries. I mean, we've talked about how the First Nations in Canada or the poorer people in other, this happens everywhere, they're underserved people. Uh, you have to have ways of reaching out to them and do preventive medicine. And this problem of COVID-induced brain disorders, it's really alarming if you look at the statistics. Really? Uh, there have been studies of electronic records, there are reports of 23% of people that report uh, things. There's uh, this UK biobank study, uh, and it, it's alarming, but it's a, it's a difficult problem. How? Because for heart disease, which is also a consequence, for any other disease, you have simple measures right. that can guide you. Yep. But for the brain, we always have the problem that you have the psychological tests, okay, yeah. and they're recorded, but that's not enough, yeah. okay? So I'm sorry if I, if I gave you this, uh, let's say, this, this thing, but it, you just touched the button on what I think is necessary. I think that people have to step up together, the researchers, and address this problem. Because in this whole situation of COVID, uh, it's a large part of the world that's still not getting either the vaccines or the attention. And this is a, it's an urgent problem, I think. That, that the same as we're concerned with Climate change, which is which is logical, we have to be concerned about the amount of people that are not getting treatment of any sort or diagnosis or anything. Yeah, and and, and the big problem also, right, is long COVID, you know, and also the long term effects after you after you get, but you know, it's it's a really, it's a scary thing, and how much, how you know, how how people don't fully recover and and try to quantify that in some way. It's just, yeah, you know, in the past I always thought, oh, I got a flu and I'm better and I'm, and everything's fine, but seems like with COVID, there's some damage and, and, and it's variable. It's all over the place. And you're right. Having, having brain-based measures or, or good behavioral tests or something that can, that can get a handle on this seems like a big task, but fundamental in that regard. Uh, one, other, uh, uh, one other quick thing. And so, so just before the very end, uh, so I, I'm sure that, you know, speaking of sort of Public health—they're not really public health, but sort of uh, issues and you know having to do with uh, Cuba. And um, I just remember listening to a podcast, and I heard that your brother, you know, Mitchell, was sort of chiming in on this whole thing with the uh, the sonic attacks and the embassies and uh, things like that. And I and I, I figured might as well, you know, since I have you on, have you uh, have you chime in on on your opinion about this? Because I've actually lost track of what finally was concluded. Um, I haven't been keeping up, but, uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, your relationship, but I don't, I don't even know if it's true if, if Mitchell was part of the investigation or, or what, but. So Mitchell, Mitchell headed the committee of the Academy of Sciences. I was part of it too. We actually traveled at one point to Washington to talk with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, we you know, with the state department, you know, and there's been full cooperation from the Cuban part. Uh, there was this is not well known, but there was cooperation between the uh, Cuban police and the FBI. Uh, there's been a lot of because we're as 
no, we're as worried about this as possible. First, I have to say that I object to the term Havana syndrome. It's like saying the Spanish flu, which originated in France, maybe. Right. You know, it, right. It's, it's, or, or talking about the, uh, the Indian variant. Now it's called the Delta variant, you know. So this, uh, these, uh, this syndrome where people have uh, a very large variety, they, there hasn't been the identification of what is known as a syndrome in medicine, because it's a great diversity of things. Yes. And we have been a bit frustrated because this immediately has taken on, a, let's say, instead of being a health problem that has to be solved, it's taken on a political connotation. Yeah. And what, what worries us is that there's no real explanation. We found very flimsy some of the attempts and reports that have been published, which, by the way, it happened in Cuba, and we haven't been invited at all to share data, to analyze. We've offered, we even had a symposium in Cuba to which many of our joint friends went, which we made public, yeah. and where we invited people that thought there was an enemy weapon to be there, because we think that if there is an enemy weapon, it should be discovered, but we don't see much evidence for it. We think, uh, and we think that, that the problem, this is, as many things in the world have become in recent years, very politicized and it's become very uh, divisive, you know? And uh, I think that there's some things that can't be solved that way. You have to solve them rationally, you know, with a cool mind, exchanging ideas, hearing other opinions, looking at evidence, well, when we did the symposium in Havana, there were people that came up and there were some recordings of the sonic attacks that some people, not all said, and there were some scientists from Jamaica saying that it was the, a cricket. Yeah. And you think when, there's, when, there's, when there's doubt, you have to weed out because if not, it'll become a mystery. And now, unfortunately, this seems to be something that is being claimed all over the world. It's happening in uh, let's say it's happening in Colombia. It happened supposedly in Austria and in other parts. So it's, it's becoming alarming. But we think that the only way to get at the end, uh, by the way, uh, many eminent scientists from the U.S., there's one guy who headed uh, research in the, naval, in, the, in the Navy for weapons that could be used by ultrasound. And he's part of our panels because we're not political. We just want to know what happened. Right. And he says that it's extremely unlikely. But uh, 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 much of this work has been done behind closed doors. You know, there's always the, the suspicion that there's a foreign agent. When you think it's a foreign agent, uh, then, then it's more difficult to find the truth. And what I'm worried about is that there are people who are suffering. And, uh, for example, many of these might have... Uh, a, a problem that is in the brain, right. but is not, but is caused by several factors, and not. I, this is what is known as a neurological functional uh, syndrome. Yes, and there's a lot of literature on it, and it may not be that. But if people that do have that are not correctly diagnosed, yeah, the first. The first treatment is to have a correct diagnosis. Yes. And I don't think there's clarity of this. And I yeah. think that what has impeded clarity has been the politicization, you know, uh, people, one party trying to, in the U.S. especially, trying to gain points over the other one. Cuba was accused at one point, but I mean, that fell apart. We don't have the technology nor the interest, okay? 
uh, for doing anything. I mean, that's the yeah. most absurd. After, after Obama opened up and we had the possibility of normal relations, which I remember at my center, it was broadcast when Obama and Raul Castro mentioned it, and we erupted in applause. Yeah. For us, relations with the states is essential and great. Now, so what I'm saying is that, that I feel that it's not well studied. There isn't a diagnosis. Yeah. It's being used politically. The name isn't correct. Okay. It is newsworthy because, of course, this sounds, you know, like something really uh, the aliens are invading or yeah. something. I mean, that's the people the problem, are right. suffering. It's so the people are suffering. Yeah. The people are suffering. They they have a right to demand treatment, but what they have, to, what they need to have is a, a correct diagnosis and getting to the bottom of this. Okay. Uh, that, and you can look up, we have a report of the Cuban Academy of Sciences, which can be, anybody can access, where we say what our doubts are. I mean, why we think that things are not clear. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, what I object to is any form of impeding uh, scientific exchange for any reason. Well, you know that. I mean, it, it, I, 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 nobody should do that. In yeah. fact, we have very good examples where at one point, due to the embargo about four years ago, uh, suddenly in Cuba, we couldn't ask access PubMed. And we spoke to the to government officials in the US and that was solved. Yes. Because many of these problems, if you, you know, if you're, if people look at it rationally, I mean, there's no point to some of these things. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I completely 100% agree with you. I think that's... Um... Yeah, and it's it's tricky. I mean, you have a, a landscape of ideas, and and the only way that the best ones can thrive is if, if you have this free exchange, and and you know sort of. But it's very it's very delicate. You know, it's very delicate because then you have you know you have bias, you have agendas, you have you know many things happening, and 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 yeah. I mean, in science, you have disagreements and arguments, but it's usually worked out in the data. You know, you eventually the truth comes through because you you know care about the data people can reanalyze the data they can look at it they can discuss the canadians by the way consider that this could have been excess of uh anti-mosquito uh, agents oh that's interesting that's interesting they, they came with that theory too and they're actually doing a joint research with it they, they proposed that theory they said this could be organophosphates which could have been done by extra maybe by extra you know because mosquitoes are or a problem and that's that's a but you have to test that yeah i mean there are alternative hypothesis maybe that's not true maybe the other is not true but you're not going to get at the truth if exactly. you start doing things behind uh, closed doors i agree i agree 100 so okay well thank you and and also let's just uh so just to wrap it up is there anything i mean you you know there's so much more that we could have talked about like you know for instance uh starting lab man like you know the the local chapter for ohbm in, in latin america and and neuroscience in Latin America, but um, these are all things that, that maybe we'll talk about another time. But um, is there anything that you'd like to add? Or, I mean, this has been a wonderful... Uh, uh, Not know. much, really, because it, it, essentially one of the things that worries me, uh, I just want to say, is that the pandemic has put the world back a lot. It's dropped the economy. And there's been a trend that... Uh, that there's a growing inequity in the world. I mean, you can, this, this is obvious, though. So the general level of people, because some countries have pulled their people out of poverty, China, other countries. So the general level of poverty is less in the world, but the inequity has been growing. 
Now, this inequity is, uh, is also re reflected in science. And the pandemic has put a strain on economies and things. So it, one last thing is that more than ever, the universal spirit of scientists, you know, the humanitarian spirit, the exchange is important. That's what I think is the most important thing. And that we have to think of those people that are less fortunate than us and try to see how we can help them in every way by being more inclusive, uh, by helping them develop science. That's that's the bit, a bit what I wanted to end with. Okay, I started my work under that flag with the people that came to Cuba to help us develop science where there was nothing. Yes, and. Uh, And, and then we, I feel that uh, those countries that have developed science, they really should have the moral obligation to help other countries that are less fortunate. And it's, you know, it's a very difficult thing because you have, uh, sometimes science is not prioritized in the, in the country by the, you know, by the own political elite. Uh, and there's no way to drive it. There's not funding. Uh, people try to go back to their countries And then sometimes get very disappointed because they can't do work and they end up by being part of the brain drain. These are, these are problems that should be continuously talked about. They don't have an easy solution. You know, we can't, we can't hope to solve all the problems, but at least knowing about them and trying to, to help is important. That's yeah. the last thing I want to do. And it seems that, right, trying to spread the science and spread the, spread the impact is You know, it's it's tricky because there's you know multifaceted solutions. There's you know potentially political solutions, but but you're right. The the, the principle of using the using science, using technology, using that philosophy of you know, uh, and, and also the science benefits from the spread as well. And and I think, yeah, it, one hopes that it doesn't lose any foothold and and try to keep on making progress. You know, one hopes that that happens, but there's other forces, <laughs> and and. Uh, But I'm, I'm still optimistic. I'm still optimistic, even though you're right, things have taken a, taken a little bit of a hit with, with COVID. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we, we have a lot to do with physics. I'm just mentioning the boundary conditions. Within the boundary conditions, there's a lot we can do. So yes. there's no excuse of giving up because of the boundary conditions. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, exactly. <laughs> all, all right, on, on that note, but I, I just like to, Thank you very much for, for coming. This has been a, a, an amazing conversation and I really enjoyed it. And uh, um, yeah, and I wish you the best. Okay. Well, I hope we see each other soon. Yes. Maybe in and I hope travel eases up and that we're able to see each other. Soon. Yeah, hopefully in Scotland or, or you know, where, where the next OHPM is or whatever. So, or some workshop. I'm sure that will, you know, before we know it, it will start up again. So, and be regular. Let's hope, let's hope so. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Rachel Stickman and Anastasia Brovkin.